2: Mina Kimes was an award-winning investigative reporter when her career took a very unexpected turn on this edition of the Carlos Watson Show podcast she talks about her second chapter as a football analyst on ESPN
3: Mina Kimes, welcome to the show Thanks for having me. Now, is this going to be a controversial conversation? Or are you going to make uh, the wrong choices when I ask you about the best of all time, or are we going to get along? Uh,
4: well, it depends whether or not you are right and appreciate LeBron James and everything that he's done for the sport of basketball. So I guess we'll find out.
3: <laughs> we'll find out soon. Where Where are you from originally? Are you in Angelino, or where, where's home?
4: Um. So I'm from, like, all over. My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, I did live in... San Pedro in LA at one point as a kid, but I've lived in a million different places.
3: And So where'd you graduate high school? Did you?
4: I graduated from high school in Arizona.
3: Wow, okay. So, uh,
4: sometimes I'll, I'll just tell people I'm from there, but I'm not really.
3: Not really. So so, so, who are your teams? What happens when you're kind of turned all around in the kaleidoscope? Who, uh, Where do you end up as a sports fan?
4: So I inherited all of my dad's allegiances. Okay. Uh, so it's all Seattle. My dad's from Washington. Uh, so, grew up rooting for the Sonics, now NBA, I just kind of am a free agent, which is fun, but Mariners, Washington Huskies, uh, Seattle Seahawks, um, and then my mom's Korean, so I'll root for Korea like in the Olympics or the World Cup.
3: Oh, nice, okay, little uh, little bilateral uh, deal there. Yes. Um, so wait, So who, as a fellow sports junkie, who's the most interesting athlete you've actually gotten to meet so far?
4: Ooh, most interesting. Um, no, I did a story for ESPN the magazine on Aaron Rodgers, I want to say in 2017. Um, he actually came to my house, which was pretty surreal. And I found him to be really fascinating. He had also not done a lot of interviews, so... That's always interesting because you're actually learning new things about the person um so that would be up there for me the other one i, I did the, my first story at espn my first cover story was on darrell revis um the jets cornerback and i found him to be really fascinating to just kind of like a introvert um very not what you'd expect from a cornerback
3: interesting and and what and why did you find aaron Rodgers interesting i find him Quiet. I I have to admit, uh, Stephen A. Smith, your colleague loving him so much has actually made me love him more. Calling him a bad man has made me get more excited about him. He's
4: been a bad man this year. Yeah.
3: Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're doing well. Um,
4: you know, he's he's just like a I think interested people are interesting and he's a guy who is interested in the world and reading and um kind of expanding his horizons, I suppose. So, you know, is open to talking about faith and life and the ways in which he's changed, which is something I always find really interesting about people when they're open about the fact that perhaps they weren't always the same way, you know, Um, especially athletes. So I think uh, it was interesting to talk to him about his progression, especially given how famous he is. You know, when, when athletes are really in the public eye we feel like we know so much about them already. So to find anything new or surprising is kind of a gem as a journalist.
3: Interesting. Do you think there was something about you that allowed you to get greater insight with them? I mean, I also appreciate what you're saying about the fact he came to your house, because I do think location matters too. And I do think when people get outside of their normal places, they actually will have unusual conversations, especially famous people. But was there something you think about you that, uh, that That you think allowed him to kind of be more open and more engaged?
4: i I don't know if um, it was anything about me, particularly other than the fact that I made it clear I was uh, interested in talking about everything but football. Uh, and I think sometimes for athletes, especially you know NFL players, any athlete, um, the opportunity to talk to someone about things that aren't the same things you're asked about over and over you know and um also just engage with someone who has done a lot of preparation and reading about you and kind of knows and i guess i'm talking about myself here you know i i in that interview like with every interview every time i profile an athlete i read everything that's ever been written about them every interview they've done so that i can try to go down lanes, I suppose, that they're interested in and and eager to explore. Not things that they've said necessarily, but I I know, um, you know, an athlete is interested perhaps perhaps in talking about politics or culture, then I'll go there with them. And I think athletes appreciate that.
3: Interesting. When you... You know, one of the most interesting conversations I've had with an athlete was with LaDainian Tomlinson, the former uh, Chargers uh, running back, who surprised me when he said that what he had learned most about what it takes to be great in the NFL, not just to be a player, he said besides talent, he said he thought a couple of things. Um, One, he thought being married made a difference. Uh, He said, Carlos, I'm going to surprise you, but I think being married actually makes a difference, that disproportionately the players who are really good are not out all the time and about, and aren't single and and mingling, which I thought that was interesting. And the second thing he said is he said, you have to kind of like pain. He said, he said, because things are so fast and there's so much conduct, he says, if you don't like pain in the end, you'll get worn down by it and you'll shrink from it. And people who actually kind of like pain, he said, have an advantage because they kind of get into the fray. Has there been anything that has surprised you that you've learned about what it takes, not just to be a player at that elite level, but actually one of the best that, you know, now a couple years in, you're like, you're a couple of kind of Malcolm Gladwell-esque kind of insights.
4: I think the one commonality I've found, certainly with quarterbacks, but any really elite athletes is, um, trying to think of a way to say this, it's not a cliche, they are constantly finding reasons to have a chip on their shoulder, even when they really shouldn't. Like someone like an Aaron Rodgers or, you know, Jarrell Revis, who had already been accomplished at that point in his career, you know. People aren't doubting you the same way they did when you were a draft pick who fell or a young guy, maybe not a five-star recruit. Um, But the great athletes that I've interviewed often tell me that they still feel that way. They're always fueled by the sense of perceived disrespect or people underestimating them. And, And I've heard Tom Brady talk about this too, you know, and it never goes away no matter how many rings you've won. No matter whether or not you're perceived as a surefire hall of famer, because if you if it does go away, if you feel content, you feel like you're properly appreciated. I think that drive can be missing.
3: Interesting. You, you know, maybe you can shed a little light on this. Talk to me about the coach player dynamic, because so many of the coaches have never played themselves, or at least never played it at an elite level. Right? They weren't uh, NFL players, and. I remember a couple of years ago the running back Larry Johnson getting mad I think at Todd Haley his coach saying hey dude not only did you not play college football you were a golfer which was kind of his was kind of a pejorative for him um but what have you seen in that dynamic between coach and player particularly those coaches who haven't played pro football or pro baseball or pro basketball, or in many cases, even college at an elite level, how are they able to command? Because in most other things that you and I do, whether it's journalists, doctors, um, teachers, et cetera, you're usually looking up to someone who's done your job, right? A lot of times. And the person who's guiding you is someone who's actually done that work.
4: You know, I have spoken with a lot of athletes about this, about the coaches and sort of what it takes for them to love a coach to respect a coach. And many NFL players in particular have told me, you know, I do appreciate it when a guy played, um, when, you know, when he's been through what I've been through, but you hear players talk about like a Bill Belichick who did not play football at a high level, but is obviously universally regarded as, I think the greatest NFL coach in the history of the sport. And I've talked to former players of his who have said, Obviously, they respect his mind, his brilliance, his appreciation, his you know uh, grasp of the game, all of the work that he puts into it. But they feel like he goes out of his way to understand their role and what it takes. And and that sort of empathy is the wrong word, but that sort of deep understanding doesn't necessarily require having played the game. And frankly, that's something I think about because. I'm in a position where people come at me all the time and say, you didn't play the game. And I feel an additional pressure to, I guess, do the work, frankly, um, because I didn't. I'm not able to draw on my own playing experience uh but i can draw on a deep well of research and preparation i think i just compared myself to bill belichick there which i'd like to walk back <laughs> but you understand what
3: i'm saying yeah. I, you know i actually appreciate what you're saying i appreciate that you walked it uh, back there you know but but stay with that for a little bit i mean do you feel like you have that real insight i mean so many of us love sports here in the us and around the world and so we all talk about it at home and barber shops and bars and all sorts of Places And so maybe for us as fans, watching you, watching Stephen A. Smith, watching Mike Greenberg, watching others who didn't play uh, uh, professionally but are giving, you know, pretty meaningful, important context uh, uh, to the games we love, you know, we've kind of gotten used to that. But is is there a part of you that has either imposter syndrome or has concerned that, you know, while I have studied it well, I don't really, really... Uh, know uh, what it's like to be Le'Veon Bell or to be uh, Rob Gronkowski or, or whomever?
4: A hundred percent. And for me, that's that awareness. I, I find I have to both compartmentalize it so that it doesn't inhibit um, sort of my ability to be expressive and opinionated and be myself. You know, I, I don't want to be... Inhibited by this sense that whether well, there are a lot of people watching this who think, who's she? Who does she think she is? You can't have that in your brain. But that said, I think it's also important for me to be aware of the gaps in my knowledge. You know, I do an NFL show um, where the two other analysts who are on with me are former players. And when we, when a story comes up where I do feel like playing experience matters, I take a step back and I ask them, because I want to learn from them. By that same token, I think I bring information to the table, perhaps that they don't always have. I mean, they'll, they'll tell me, you know, wow, like I, I didn't even know we could use those statistics, for example, or I didn't know that about X player. And I think the importance of doing television or analysis as a team is recognizing, much like a, you know, actual sports team, who brings what strengths and weaknesses to the table and being cognizant of those while not letting them weigh you down, as I think sometimes when we're underrepresented folks in certain fields, that feeling can weigh you down and you don't want it to do that.
3: Mina, talk about though the preparation that you do have and what you're learning. You know, we have recently seen a number of broadcasters go from broadcaster to uh, team management, right? (laughs) To running teams, either coaches or, in some cases, the front office. Is that something that you think you could do and would you want to do it?
4: Uh, No, (laughs) it's a short answer. I don't don't know. Maybe on the front office side, perhaps, I I would have that ability, but I, I... I think I'm far from it at this point. And I also, I I, I love my job. I love analyzing football. Um, I like the ability to kind of take that 10,000 foot view of all 32 teams while also diving deep into particular players and matchups. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think I, I've, I feel very confident in my preparation, the abilities, but I still have a really long way to go. And I hope I always feel that way, frankly, because if I don't, then I'm probably not doing a good job.
3: Interesting. You're doing that Aaron Rodgers, uh, uh, Tom Brady, chip on your shoulder thing. I love it. Okay, that's good. I love it. That's good. You're You're learning from some of the best. All right, let's do a little GOAT ranking here. In football, based on what you know, Give me the three best football players of all time. And, and you can make it what, of all time, or even just the era that you feel like you have focused on. Who stands out to you? Who are three of the best NFL players of all time?
4: Um, Tom Brady, um, Jerry Rice, I feel like. Uh, they're, 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 it's so hard to do three. No, but I will do three. Um, maybe LT. I feel I feel bad if I don't do a defensive player, but I want to say Jim Brown, too. OK, maybe I'll say Jim Brown, but that's all offense. That's terrible.
3: You know what? I think you did it right, though. I think I should have asked you for four. And I think you actually named the right four. And I think that was a good four. I would, I, yeah, really? Are yeah, you with me on those yeah, four? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's good. I think that's good. I think those are the right four. the The only legitimate question is what a real person would do in a Super Bowl, if they could have Tom Brady or Joe Montana. I know right now, because of the era we're in, everyone is saying Tom Brady, but if you really were the owner of the team or the coach of the team, and you really had one game, and you really could only have one quarterback, would you take Tom Brady in his prime, or would you take Joe Montana?
4: Uh, I would take Brady in his prime.
3: You would take Brady in his prime?
4: Yeah. Are you a Niners fan, by the way?
3: I'm I'm a Joe Montana fan. I'm a Joe Montana fan. I used to like teams. Now I like individual players uh, uh, the most.
5: It took 11 years to get to the sale. The Knicks anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of Knicks' biggest sales of the year.
3: To take you over to basketball. How strong are you? How strong is your basketball game?
4: Um, so, I, I love the NBA and we cover it a lot. So, in addition to being an NFL analyst, I'm on other shows we do like Around the Horn, Highly Questionable, First Take, where we talk a lot of college football and NBA as well. Um, and, and not having a team like I do in Seattle actually makes it easier for me because I can just appreciate the game, root for the best matchups. Um, I love LeBron. If you're gonna to go to the goat conversation with me, it's LeBron. Feel free to bring on the hate if you don't agree. You're,
3: you're, you're gonna say Lebr- LeBron over Michael Jordan?
4: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a LeBron
3: person. Are you just saying that to be controversial, or do you really believe that?
4: No, I think it's a gen I, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm sorry, but I th- I found you, in my you, field you know what? it tends you, to Nina, be a little. You bit- know, what?
3: this conversation was good until you say that. I appreciate that, but you're right. It is a generational thing because I'm a Gen Zer. And I think that for young people like me, I think, you know, we know. I'm just kidding. All right. I, but I, I think I think Michael Jordan clearly was better. Anyway, but you never watched Jordan at all. That's what you're saying.
4: Uh, clearly was better is um, pretty wild. I, I think it's, it look, it, it's an era's thing. Obviously, basketball is so different now. Um, we all watched The Last Dance. Some of those guys that MJ was banging around with you would not see in the NBA today. The competition was very different, as uh, particular in the East. I just think LeBron James is the most talented.
3: Wait, 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 wait. Are you trying to say the conversation was weaker?
4: Oh, competition.
3: You definitely are on LeBron's payroll. All right, we're going to move <laughs> on from that. You're definitely on LeBron's payroll. Okay. Um, uh, let's talk about how you became... Uh, a sports analyst. How did you enter that? If I had met you as a young person, were you like predestined to uh, to end up there?
4: No, not at all, actually. Um, so I love sports through my father. As I said, I inherited all of his interests. Love watching football with him, but never thought I would work in sports. Never, Certainly never thought I would be on TV talking about sports. And... Um, I was interested in writing, so I became a journalist out of college and I was a business journalist for years before ESPN hired me. I was an investigative reporter at Fortune Magazine and then Bloomberg News and writing about businesses doing bad things, finance, that sort of thing, getting yelled at by lawyers a lot. Um, All all the while, my hobby was just watching an upsetting amount of football, but that was just my hobby until I started working at ESPN.
3: And then, and how did the ESPN, how did the big break come?
4: Um, I wrote a personal essay about watching football with my father and sort of how it connected us. And I also, despite being a ostensibly serious financial journalist, all of my social media was just dumb football content, like commentary memes on football. So at so ESPN saw both of those things editor and reached out to me and said, you are writing about business but you seem to be obsessed with football is something you'd consider um so kind of made the quarter life jump uh switched fields and i joined espn as a writer not an analyst as a writer in 2014.
3: and did you did early on when you joined them were you joining them with the thought that you would love to do tv or were you continuing your writing career
4: much like when I was young, watching football, it didn't even occur to me, frankly, um, that I would be on television, except for to talk about my stories sometimes. But I never thought I would be an analyst. Never thought I would do radio or TV or podcasts or any of that. I just thought I was going to be a reporter. And I was for first few years that I was at ESPN. Uh, I was writing profiles and covering the Olympics and that kind of thing. Um, I didn't really start doing television full time until around 2016, 2017.
3: Interesting. And what, has it been hard uh, doing TV? Is it? What's it been like for you?
4: Um. Yeah. Because I'm I'm not, you know, the kid who grows up with her hairbrush, looking at the mirror, pretending like she's doing broadcasts. I I didn't perform in college or anything like that. Um. And I never really wanted to be a public person in any way, but um. You know, I love talking about football. So for me, I've had to learn, you know, watching football, analyzing it, studying. That's stuff I know how to do. What I've had to learn is the performance side of it. You know, you're on television. You're how do you convey a complicated thought in thirty seconds? How do you make analysis or statistics, which is something I lean on a lot, um, digestible to our viewers and interesting? And that's something that I've spent a lot of time working on. I also you know, I have a role that's sort of new for women. And um, so I don't, I you know, coming into my job, I didn't really have that many, I guess, I don't say role models because I have a lot of role models, but sort of models perhaps to copy or imitate or emulate in any way, which is probably why the job didn't occur to me for a long time.
3: Interesting. And have there been certain things that you have done over the last couple of years that have allowed you to become as good on tv as you are
4: thank you um just practice it's it's like writing it's like any it's craft you know uh the same way i grind football tape i started off i was grinding my own tape noticing that i needed to be louder in certain spots or you know more confident perhaps but yeah I, i i just think doing it for a while and and gaining that sort of confidence came with time um i also work with a lot of really supportive incredible people at espn i mean i alluded to the fact that i'm on this show with two former football players my fellow analysts hosted by laura rutledge is fantastic and they've been incredible advocates for me you know you asked about imposter syndrome i doubt myself all the time but i work with people who don't doubt me and who lift me up and affirm me. And and, um, I think that's so important when you're in this kind of job.
3: Talk a little bit about the female dynamic right now, because we're seeing more. uh, I remember growing up and there weren't that many. um, I probably could count uh, the number of folks on one hand. uh, But today, I actually feel like there is a broadening of the sports broadcaster role. Gender is one of the dimensions in which it's true, but I also see that racially, uh, that it feels like it's gone beyond white and black and you see uh, more in different in a variety of ways. I also feel like people are coming from different backgrounds. Um, You know, you talked about being an investigative journalist and business reporter, and I see more people who are coming maybe from uh, unusual places. Talk about that. Is that that as rich and varied as I think it is? Is the pipeline much more open?
4: Uh it's getting there, <laughs> I think.
3: Hey, okay.
4: You know, in some ways, definitely. I mean, look, I am a Korean American woman whose title is NFL analyst. When I'm not on my show, the person who's on in my spot is Keyshawn Johnson. That's insane. I wish I could build a time machine and go back and tell my younger self, "You're going to be you and Keyshawn Johnson are going to be sitting in the same spot at that table, uh, breaking down games and and stuff." So. In some ways, I think it's so amazing to turn on ESPN and see so many incredible underrepresented groups in the past, you know, um, and, and some women in particular for me, you know, like our network, I think, has done a really good job of finding and elevating voices on the radio, podcasts, on our shows. But, you know, we there's still a very long way to go. I mean, when you turn on the typical NFL pregame show, um... You're obviously, if you're watching broadcasts, it's still very unusual to see female analysts, frankly, um, and, you know, I, I, I hope that changes, I hope uh, there's a lot of really talented young women who are reporting on the sport and covering it, and hopefully many of them, would, some of them would make the jump from being a reporter to being an analyst, but it's still pretty early on. Yeah.
3: What did you think when uh, Jamel Hill, who was another uh, female sports writer who became a broadcaster and was the host of one of ESPN shows and then um, uh, spoke out against uh, President Trump and ultimately separated with the network, uh, that was pretty public. What did you think? What did you see? What did other of your fellow colleagues think about while that was going down?
4: Well, I should say I'm friends with Jamel, and I think she's awesome and she's One of, when I talked about how our network, like, you know, you see women in roles that they weren't in uh, five years ago, five years ago. That's because of people like her. Um, You know, she occupied uh, more of an opinionator role when, again, it it still was pretty uncommon because she's so smart, funny, loves sports. So I'll just start there. Um, And I respect, I, 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 I love that she, Not only cares deeply about things that are happening in the world, but uses her platform and continues to now in many platforms she has to express those views. Um, I look up to her, frankly. I did then. I do now. And it's something that, uh, you know, I ponder too. like with my own, whether it's whether I'm on an NFL show or whether I'm on social media, I think, okay, like if I feel like this summer uh, we there were so many. Teams and athletes who were speaking out, and in some cases, in the case of the NBA, you, you remember the Bucks boycotting a game after the shooting of Jacob Blake in the wake of death of George Floyd, and a lot of us at the network thought about: okay, some of our viewers or readers or listeners, they're maybe they're tuning in expecting one thing, but I feel I feel passionate about this. I want to talk about this through the lens of sports, how can I best accomplish that? And um, yeah, it was something I thought about a lot too. And sorry, I know this, this has been a bit of a, a journey, but I think it's something that ongoing, I think my role go it, in talking about sports, it matters also to be attuned to things that are happening in the world and how they affect athletes. And I think I'm always trying to find the right spots to do that.
3: Yeah, but it, it's, it's been interesting to to see, after Jamel, I felt like I haven't seen anyone be quite that outspoken since. And I wondered whether she, what Kaepernick was to players, if she was a little bit to broadcasters, meaning that people admired but didn't feel comfortable following.
4: I actually think um, she, I, I called her a pioneer in terms of being like a female analyst, but I think also you know, people now, I, I thought this summer in particular, and not just on our network, all across the sports world, you saw athletes, analysts, reporters engaging with the ways in which politics, culture, issues of race and class affects sports more than ever, frankly, um, which I, I found really heartening. Um, I think... I hope it continues, frankly. And I think, you know, like I hope people feel empowered. I, I know you saw that with athletes, a particular college athletes who are so brave um, speaking out sometimes against their own programs. Um, but I, I, I actually think that compared to even just like, like I said, a few years ago, um, minds are more open now and people are speaking up more in my space.
3: I'm sure that probably has a lot of value because so many of us love sports so much that hearing it not just from athletes, but from those of you who are broadcasters probably carries extra extra weight for many people. People are able to probably hear you in a way that they may not be able to hear others. Um, talk about race because it feels like you probably have a, a, a really interesting purview. You know, For one, you've lived in a variety of different places. Two, you come from a blending of of cultures. You know, three, you live in a place now like Los Angeles. And four, you're in the world of sports. What, if anything, have you learned or has surprised you on the question of race? And I realize that's a pretty big and open-ended question, but to some extent, I mean it to be. Has there been anything that has been a, a surprising revelation or insight, good, bad, or or just different, on, on questions of race uh, over the last couple of years for you?
4: I mean, I cover a sport that is primarily black and yet, you know, ownership, coaching, um, management doesn't reflect that. I have um, this summer, you know, talking about as, as the protests were going on and so many teams and athletes and coaches and whatnot, Coming forward and, and talking about systemic racism, right? You, you heard that phrase, Every team put out a statement: "We're against systemic racism." But frankly, you know, it's still pervasive in the sport itself. Um, this is not, and it's not something I didn't know before this summer. But I, I guess, to answer your question, until I started covering sports, I wasn't engaging with the ways in which issues of race, um, discrimination, uh, marginalization actually affect the sports themselves. Um, way in which they're pervasive in the ways we talk about athletes, uh, how they're treated. Um, something I've written about often is sort of, um, the, Ways in which black quarterbacks have been treated differently from white quarterbacks throughout time, coaches as well, frankly, uh, explain the absence of diversity there. So, covering this league, covering the sport, doing, you know, X's and O's analysis, I've also um, been exposed to some of those problems. And I see them dovetailing in ways that I am, um, you know, I, I think part of my job is connecting those dots and being honest and open and critical when necessary.
3: Pushback? Have you gotten in from your reporting, whether you're touching matters of race or just an individual player? Have you ever? I mean, I'm sure you always get some aid on social media.
4: Oh yeah, a lot. But, yeah. But, but
3: have you ever gotten like meaningful? One of the players or one of the coaches or other calls you and really, you know, goes in on you? And and if so, what does that look like? And what has it been over? Is it usually been an individual player story, or has it been you touching a broader theme like race or something else?
4: Yeah, I, I've definitely gotten. Um, Pushback, you know, if I go on TV and I say it's crazy that this is a league that's over seventy percent black and yet we have four non-white head coaches, um, I get my phone definitely lights up a little bit with certain people, especially if I'm naming people, you know, or teams or whatnot. Absolutely, it doesn't. It, you know, these conversations don't make people comfortable. Um, there are, and then on social media, of course, there's um uh, uh, parts of our audience or viewers who are interested and in, in open to learning and then there are people who don't want to hear those things, you know um, so I, I it's not it, it always would it's always easier easier to stick to sports. that's the phrase we hear sometimes um, and 90% of the time I am talking about, just sports 90% of the time I'm talking about, you know, the Bucs defense against uh, the Packers scheme or whatever. But uh, I think it's important always to not feel restricted to that, especially in times like this.
3: Interesting. Um, You know, I know you were an investigative journalist when you started out. And one of the most interesting story I thought in sports over the last decade was the Jonathan Martin story. So, Kid from Los Angeles, goes to Stanford, um, gets drafted high, ends up becoming a starting offensive lineman for the Miami Dolphins, and then quits midseason, saying that he'd been bullied by one of his teammates. And ultimately, what other sorts of things like that have you come across that might surprise people who are on the outside and who are just kind of generic fans of sports? Are there other things like that? Because as the report was written, and as I've... Subsequently heard other people talk about it. Apparently this is pretty widespread. That wasn't just the Miami Dolphins kind of thing. It may have had a different dimension to it, but it wasn't just. But what are other things like that that might surprise kind of casual sports fans?
4: I think that's, that it was an uh, incident which you're referring to, which was terrible, um, is sort of a good example of the toxic masculinity that you find in all sports. Um, all men's sports you know and it's not necessarily pervasive or all-encompassing but it certainly still exists you know in 2020 at all levels high school college uh professional you know it's heartbreaking to hear because I think from the outside sometimes people assume well they're they're a team you know everyone must love each other and it's a meritocracy and it's not and often it is man like I Shoot, NFL players, like, they would go to war for each other, uh, which I guess realizes realize is a kind of a toxic analogy, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the conversations, though, I've had, like, these guys are each other's godfathers to their kids, and they've got wonderful rela- relationships that transcend uh, the team. I mean, one of my favorite things in sports is when you see in the NFL is when you see two guys who run a team, and now they're on different teams. And before a game, you see them talking and you're like, all right, these are human beings who work together and they're friends and they love each other. And they're about to, you know, he's about to tackle the hell out of him. But, um, but that said, that doesn't preclude incidents like the one, you know, the Jonathan Martin one from happening. And it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that when it came even when it came to light, it wasn't just him too. But, um, I, I, I would say there's probably stories like that all the time that don't come to the surface because frankly, you know, people are disincentivized from coming forward.
3: Interesting, and have you, do you feel like as someone who's who's written and covered, as you said, kind of financial crime and business uh, chicanery, have, do you feel like you've seen some of those or is those still remain kind of in the locker room or kind of beyond your sight at this point?
4: Well, so I, you know, for me, Now I'm an analyst, so I'm I'm not covering anyone, but when I was a writer, I was um, like a features writer. So I kind of had the benefit of parachuting in and profiling a guy and spending time usually away, honestly, away from the locker room. So unlike my friends who are beat reporters at ESPN who are really embedded in that, I wasn't kind of bearing witness to the culture on the ground. So I'd only hear things secondhand and also, you know, you're hearing If I'm profiling someone, I'm usually just hearing their perception of how things are happening, which is something important when you're writing a profile, to always take with a grain of salt.
3: Hey, talk to me a little bit, Mina, about some of uh, your hobbies. Uh, Word has it that uh, you're a little bit of a crossword junkie. Is that true?
4: Yeah, I'm so cool that my number one hobby is doing crosswords, Uh, but only Thursday, Friday, Saturday.
3: (laughs) Because?
4: The other ones are too easy. They're not fun.
3: Oh, and, and do you only do the New York Times, or, or are there other? Is there like a more sophisticated level or a tougher level of competition?
4: No, no, I only do the New York Times. I do. I have the New York Times app. I got into it um, when I start a few years ago when I started traveling for work and doing television in Miami because I just was jet lagged and like not sleeping a lot. So I just got into doing it, and then crosswords are like doing television or anything. It's just kind of you just got to do them a lot and get good at it um every now and then i'll post my times my dream is to have my name in the new york times crossword that's when i know i'll know that i've made it
3: oh what an interesting uh marker that's that's a really good one well well on that point uh talk to a younger mina like if you were giving advice uh to a younger mina about dreaming fearlessly and bringing those dreams alive what would you go back and tell her what would be uh What would be at the top of the list? What advice, or you probably have been asked this a lot by various people I assume come up to you who are now are seeing you as a role model. What do you tell people about how to dream fearlessly and bring those dreams alive?
4: I would tell my younger self, I think. um, One, your braces are gonna come off at some point, I promise, and you'll look like a human being again. to care less about the opinions of others, which is frankly advice I still have to give myself today. And I think the number one thing I I tell people when they ask me about doing my job and the trolls and how difficult it is, you know, I can't imagine, like I I know obviously I have a bigger audience than the average 13 year old uh, and I'm getting more feedback on the internet, but we now all live in a time where we're constantly um, bombarded with the opinions of other people and feedback and we see it. And I think that's so difficult and challenging and um, requires mental strategies. You know, it, like living on the internet right now is not something that comes naturally to anyone. So I would tell self, granted, it wasn't on, you know, Facebook didn't exist, but I would say, don't worry so much about what other people think of you and take more risks. Think about um careers and fields and opportunities I suppose that are not something you're even imagining. Um, like I said to you I didn't my job didn't occur to me for a really long time because it wasn't a job that I saw other women doing um, I hope now you know I hope now younger women see that we're in these roles and that it's an opportunity that exists for them but I also hope they're dreaming bigger, then they're not just saying, I want to be an NFL analyst, they're saying, I want to be, you know, an, a color commentator on Sunday Night Football or something, which no woman is doing. But I hope girls now are they are able to envision those possibilities, even though they don't
3: exist. If you ever stop doing broadcasting one day and reporting, is there something else that you would love to, uh, to have another career with?
4: Boy. Um... <laughs> I think uh, I would just like to train dogs.
3: <laughs> oh, is that is that is that an ode to Lenny?
4: Yeah, but Lenny's my dog. And my only other hobby other than crosswords is hanging out with my dog. So the idea of hanging out with dogs full time uh, is pretty appealing to me.
3: I love that. I love that. I love that. All right, I'm going to have you do a little rapid fire. Are you ready for rapid fire? Yes. Uh, your favorite book? Uh, House of Mirth. House of Mirth, nice choice. Um, who would you love to meet who you haven't met yet?
4: Um, this is the, So I met Marshawn Lynch, but I was too nervous to say anything. So I'd like to, I was in Hawaii. This is the weird, so I was in Hawaii. So I know you said rapid fire, but I was in Hawaii doing color commentary for a Rams game with my friend Maurice Jones Drew, just dropped like a bunch of names. And he was like, hey, Marshawn. And the whole time I was like, And then he walked away, and NJD was like, why don't you just talk to him, you weirdo? And I was like, he's Marshawn Lynch. He's, like, my favorite. So I would like a chance to re-meet Marshawn Lynch.
3: Uh, Most impressive athlete you've ever seen or covered? Just, like, in terms of pure athletic talent, you're, like, that person, whether or not they're the GOAT, just in terms of talent, like, that's top tier talent.
4: Simone Biles. Uh, I did the, uh, the Olympics in Rio, so I got to see her. Uh, compete in person and uh, just I, I think she's probably going to go down as the most dominant gymnast in the history of the sport. She already is uh, but I think she's like the most probably dominant athlete period I've ever seen.
3: Interesting. Do you think she could cross sports? Do you think she could go from gymnastics to could she play? She's pretty
4: small so it <laughs> kind of limits the sports. I, don't, I can't see her in the WBA or anything like that but maybe like softball or soccer. I mean she's that woman, like, she's got muscles on her muscles.
3: I love that. I love that. Um, who else was interesting at Yale while you were there? Who else was in your class or, or uh, was in the ether while you were there?
4: Huh. Um, gosh. We didn't have, like, a Mark Zuckerberg or anything like that. Um, huh. Huh. I don't know, actually. I don't know. I don't think I have a good answer for that one. I feel terrible. i betraying all my classmates. A um, couple politicians, but that, that's about it. No one in, no one in sports.
3: Okay, Yale strikes out. That's okay. That happens. Yale, Yale, Yale strikes out. Sorry. <laughs> Talk to me. Uh, uh, this may or may not be rapid fire. What's the most interesting thing you've learned about love?
4: Um, what's interesting? I'm trying to think of something that's not like a needlepoint pillow to say. Um, I think that love and relationships aren't about shared interests, but that they're about shared values. Um, Something that surprises people is that my husband does not care about sports at all. (laughs) Doesn't even watch sports. Uh, so the people are always shocked by that, <laughs> no. At all? Nothing.
3: Interesting, <laughs> how did you guys meet?
4: Um, we met after college in New York through a mutual friend who he was in a band with. And he works in music, so.
3: Interesting, so you, what do you guys enjoy doing together?
4: Um, we watch a lot of TV. Uh, play with the aforementioned dog, do outdoor stuff, living in Los Angeles. You know, the weather's always great, so you can take hikes and that kind of thing. Um, I would say that those are the... And he, and he cooks well, and I eat it.
3: All right, last final on the rapid fire. You actually just served it up. What would be a, a special meal for you? What would be your final meal? Final meal for Mina Kimes. What's uh, what's on the plate?
4: Um, Unfortunately, it's not something my husband can cook. It would be a Korean meal cooked by my mother who makes, gosh, she makes so much good Korean food. Um, I really love chop which is like a glass noodle dish. So maybe that's what I would choose or like a good bibimbap perhaps. I miss Korean food so much. That's one thing during the quarantine because I just, and the Korean food here is great, but with the quarantine, you're not able to go to Korean
3: restaurants anymore. There's good stuff. Uh, who's the, uh, um, what is the most interesting interview on your podcast you've had so far?
4: Oh, so yeah, my show, Minicon show featuring Lenny, um, co-hosted by my dog. Um, I, I, mostly it's just analysis, but I've done a few interviews. Um, we have Bobby Wagner on from the Seahawks. I thought that was really interesting, so I'll point to him. Excellent player, interesting guy, uh, future Hall of Famer.
3: You're making Bobby Wagner a future Hall of Famer?
4: I am. I think he is. <laughs>
3: you, uh, um, He's,
4: he has d- dominated the position for several years, which is usually the bar.
3: Y- you know what? Uh, uh, out of respect for him, I'm just going to say great that, 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 that I love that. Um, uh, l- let me finish up a little bit here on politics. Interested in politics or not?
4: I mean, I, I live in America and it's 2020, so it'd be hard not to <laughs> pay attention.
3: A politician that you admire or would enjoy meeting?
4: Um, I mean, I would love to meet Barack Obama. It's like a very easy and obvious question. I, th- I wish I had some kind of hipster answer like, you know, William Harrison or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, 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 Obama, you know, it, I think not only is he a big sports fan, uh, but uh, having read... A lot of his writing, um, as someone who's a fan of his writing, and I I think I just, uh, someone who was so impactful during my own lifetime, I think it would be hard for me to go in a different direction. Someone who's, this is going to sound weird, but you you asked me about kind of being on television, someone whose oratorial style, frankly. I've admired and learned a lot from and sort of paid attention to and studied. Uh, So I think I I would really enjoy meeting him. You
3: know, what's interesting is he connects his writing ability to his oratory skills. And so given your experience starting as a writer and the kind of research and thoughtfulness and preparation, you know, uh, uh, that could make sense in in both ways. Uh, Mina, finish us up by talking to us about where... Where you hope this all will go i mean no one knows for sure and i'm sure part of you is just enjoying the journey but if you do sit back sometimes and kind of think a little bit about what you'd love to be true over the next five to ten years do you have a vision for that right now about about what would be great
4: so i've never had a five-year plan and in some ways i think that served me well because my career has taken such a strange winding path to get where i am um and I hope that in five years I am doing something that I'm not even dreaming of right now. It's such a cop-out weird answer, but um, I hope it's something that transcends something that seems realistic to me at the moment. It, It kind of going back to what I said to you earlier about how I hope young women are envisioning themselves in roles that are not currently occupied by women. I'm not young anymore, but I feel the same way. I hope I'm doing something that uh, didn't seem realistic to me at the time. And I love football, so more likely than not, that will be in football. But I don't necessarily know exactly what it is.
3: Mina, I, I love that. I really appreciate you, and I hope that you'll keep coming back to the show By the time you come back next time, you will put Michael Jordan in his right place, uh, rightful place. But uh, (laughs) but 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 I really I really appreciate you coming today. Thank you for uh, thank you for stopping by.
2: Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Carlos Watson Show podcast. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts.